0: Hey folks, Conversations Podcast. This week, uh, we have Dr. Caleb Maskell, Ph.D., And the Associate National Director of Vineyard USA for Theology and Education. Uh, I'm still routinely amazed that uh, these people are willing to come and talk to our little local church. So um, we get to hear from uh, really one of the better church historians out there today, which is Caleb. and, And his expertise uh, is around uh, Methodism, and we're going to talk about the First Great Awakening and some of the remarkable things um, that God did at that time in history. So here's more from Caleb. All right, so thanks for joining the podcast, everybody. This is Aaron. Josh is here with me, and we have, um, um, and at least in my mind, an illustrious guest. Uh, so illustrious. Well known <laughs> in very small worlds. <laughs> but in the worlds in which you are known, you're you're very well known and, oh, and man. regarded So oh, man. this is Dr. Caleb Maskell. Um no we're just to gonna call him Caleb from now on. Please do. Um yes, <laughs> as opposed to Reverend Doctor or That's whatever right. title That's we might right. bestow mm-hmm. upon you. Well your kindness your
1: Highness, yeah. <laughs> yeah. my my liege, yeah, exactly, <laughs> oh,
0: illustrious God. potentate. You know yeah, whatever, whatever. whatever. Okay. Yeah, we're just Caleb. Okay. That's, that's, uh, that's so. Caleb's a friend of ours uh, and a leader in the Vineyard movement and uh, um, a historian and has done a lot of work, particularly in um the area kind of the early days of methodism and uh, the great awakenings and we're going to take a bit of time today to talk about the first great awakening but before we do that i'd love to get um in case you guys don't know uh caleb uh, a little bit of your backstory caleb just kind of the mm-hmm. i don't know man the thirty thousand foot uh, overview and where are you from how did sure. you meet jesus tell us about your education and then we'll, we'll take it from there
1: yeah yeah well i've been uh I was in school for like 40 years or something. So I'll try to get I'll try to do the abbreviated
0: version. Yeah. They don't give the PhDs away.
1: No, man. Well, I was pretty slow too. I, I was not, I wasn't one of those fast ones. Um, but uh I grew up in England, born and raised in the UK. Parents are British. Uh I got one brother, Sam, and we moved our little family, just me and my mom and dad and him, uh, from London to southern New Jersey in 1986. So I immigrated, I was nine at the time, and uh, Sam was seven. And my parents wow. were, I guess, in their late 30s and they had the American dream. You know, they they had the like Woody Guthrie, Bob Dylan, uh, you know, <laughs> the whole thing, like the the country music, like I mean that was like their 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 understanding of America was really connected, I would say, to like music and poetry and Wow! all that stuff and 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 to church because uh they had a lot of affinity with kind of like the Jesus people uh and that had its own little manifestation in uh, the UK but mm-hmm. but for my mom and dad I, I think America meant like the land of opportunity and the land of many churches <laughs> right oh, I and see. so yeah. and so uh, I grew up in a world in the UK where there was a real clear sense of the culture is kind of post christian mm. um even though there were a ton of uh like churches all over the place you know i mean you can't like you know go into a little town in in england without seeing a church or two or three um sure. usually in the center of the town but my parents i think at that time maybe they'd say less so now had a bit of a sense that uh the the church was not uh in good shape and i think they believed that the things that god was doing Uh, in the churches in america were really exciting and vital i mean my dad was a huge bob dylan fan so you know bob dylan comes to faith in a vineyard church and my dad's like
0: reading everything he can get his hands on about that and you know this was almost in search of something new that god was doing they they had it yeah i think it was at least like some a pilgrimage in some small degree well, they're
1: charismatic enough that they weren't going to make a move without some sort of like divine ratification. <laughs> you know? They were for sure. Like, we think the Lord ha- is leading us to do this. And, and of course that stuff gets tested over time. Right. So it'd be real mm-hmm. interesting to ask them after, you know, 45 years, like sort of where are you at with that? Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe not yeah. quite that long, nearly 40, but, but, um, yeah, that was the journey. And so along they came and, um, we went from what were basically like charismatic house churches my folks were the first in their families uh to come to like sort of personal faith i would say Mm -hmm. and so and that happened in college my dad and my mom met in college and so they were in these uh home church networks which still exist in the uk they're kind of like In a way, like a cross between like a a sort of Quaker meeting, a lot of sort of quiet, thoughtful, reflective stuff, and like a hot Pentecostal church, right? So you can get prayer, you can get like uh, caught up in the spirit, you can get sort of spiritual warfare going on, that kind of stuff. But this is sort of interesting combo of... um, It sounds pretty great. (laughs) Well, yeah, I think it, it, it was pretty great. I'm not sure that it had an awareness of like leadership structures. And so mm. some of the challenges of those churches like those kind of churches are great till they're not right mm. they're like amazing and free and the spirits at work and we all get to kind of just flow along with whatever god is doing but then the moment that someone starts to act badly uh yeah. you have you have there's no plan <laughs> there's nothing in place sure. there's no plan and and so i i know that their church experience in the uk was really positive uh when it was good and then when it was bad it was pretty awful mm. and so um so yeah, they were on a pilgrimage and we went to the to the US and um ended up so this was 86 right before Facebook or any of that stuff. So they didn't really have any way of knowing what was around them except for like the yellow pages uh which for your younger <laughs> listeners was a book that told you about what what was going on in your neighborhood. And um and so it was yellow. It was yellow, yeah. It was yellow. So they they looked up churches. And, and eventually, we landed in a Southern Baptist church, which was really the closest kind of Bible preaching church to our house. Mm. And, when, and then we we're in Jersey, so we're near Philadelphia. But this was yeah. like a Southern Baptist church filled with people from primarily like the Deep South, uh, people who'd yeah. been transferred up for work or whatever. And so there was definitely like a cultural component uh, to the church as well, we were getting a slice of like Southern Baptist culture as Mm -hmm. well as in the kind of Southern way, as well as just like a Bible preaching church. So, you know, the church was in many ways really good. We got, you know, good, good biblical teaching and there was Sunday school and like, you know, Mm -hmm. potlucks and all that type of stuff. There was a Wednesday night prayer meeting, all the different things. But then there was also the kind of cultural pieces. And I I mention all this because it kind of plays into my story of how I came to study the history of American Christianity, because Mm -hmm. like I noticed for example, when I went to the church, that there was an American flag on the stage sure. and a Christian flag, which I'd never seen before, even then even though it was a thing. I didn't know yeah. it was a thing, but there's an American flag and a Christian flag. Which did, you is ever, pretty... did you ever
2: did you ever did you ever pledge allegiance? Did you ever pledge allegiance to the Bible also? <laughs> we that, did no, not. Was... Oh, no, that no. That. yeah. We and did did there was a pledge to the Christian flag as well, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. We had three pledges, man. It was it was wonderful.
1: i'm glad that worked for you man i i I gotta say when i when i moved to the u.s and i mean i you know we went to public school i was in i was in fifth grade and um every morning there was a pledge of allegiance to the flag and 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 and, i mean if i'm honest that really didn't work for me because i was like i'm an immigrant like i'm not doing that first of all i don't even know what this is I hope this mm-hmm. doesn't alienate anybody. I promise you, I love America. <laughs> first of all, I don't even know what this is. And, and even though, of course, we moved to America for a reason, right? And mm-hmm. and secondly, I was like, I don't think that Christians are meant to make pledges to things like flags. Like it was really a moment yes. of dissonance for me. And my mm-hmm. uh my teacher, I had to have a conversation with him where I'm like, I don't think I can do this. It was probably the first. Hard conversation I'd ever had with an adult, because I was nine,
0: right? Yes, but I'm thinking too, and these are deep thoughts for a nine-year-old.
1: Well, yeah, I just I don't think I can stand up and and say these words. They don't they don't mean what I think they mean to you, and I'm not Mm -hmm. sure that I can say this in good conscience. Anyway, so there was the American flag and there was a Christian flag, and I'd never seen a flag, at least not consciously, in a church before, right? Mm. And it made me wonder well i wonder what the connection is between this affection for american identity and the way that folks are showing up in church and and i was a kid so it wasn't much more than wondering but i had another moment in that church too where the preacher who was a great kind of expository like bible preacher you know and uh he was preaching through one of the pastoral epistles. I I can't remember which one it was, but he was talking about something that was going on in the church in the, in the first century. And I I remember having this moment where like time slowed down for me. And I was like, how did we get from wherever that is that he's talking about to whatever this is where I'm sitting like in a suit because you Mm -hmm. had to like, I mean, I'd Mm -hmm. never worn a suit to church before, I moved to America either. It was just like the thing you do. I remember my mom being like, put on your tie. And I was like, Why do I have to put on a tie?
0: I'm used to like, house church.
1: Exactly. Just do it. Yeah. Just do it. Just put it on. So I'm putting on a tie and we're going in and we're singing like, you know, he walks with me and he talks with me, which were not the kind of songs we had sung before. Mm-hmm. Again, it wasn't bad. It was just so different. And I yeah. realized culture like, wow, shock. I'm in the middle of a culture. And mm-hmm. I don't really have an understanding of what this is. There's like a revivalistic, because this was a church where like every single week, there would be a call for conversion. And if you, know, mm-hmm. you want to invite Jesus into your heart, you can like walk the aisle and come to the front and the pastor will pray with you, right? So there's mm-hmm. all these like cultural forms that I was noticing really clearly because I was from outside right Mm -hmm. noticing super clearly that i'd never seen before that just started to take shape like as questions in my mind it wasn't Mm -hmm. the kind of church where they're gonna do like like robert jeffress stuff like sing a hymn called make (laughs) america great again Uh, or something like that right (laughs) Right? it wasn't like that at all but it was just this sort of ambient way of being Mm. that i was like Mm -hmm. oh this is interesting and different and not something I've ever experienced. So often when I think about how did I end up becoming a historian of American Christianity, why bother studying all this stuff? I think it's because the question of the relationship between Christianity and American culture and like specifically the things that God is doing in the world kind of all like mashed together for me. And I had a long journey. Like I wasn't always following Jesus Mm -hmm. Um, but I had an encounter with the Lord at the end of high school that felt like a hook in my jaw, like, man, this mm. is, this is like a real deal thing where I'd like tried to be a Christian and it didn't work. And so I kind of backed up all the way from it. And then I realized, like, all God wanted was me to just surrender and he was going to come mm. get me. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's a whole long story for another time. You can, you can Google mm. some of those other Vineyard podcasts if you want to hear that story. But, <laughs> but I ended up realizing man the lord of heaven and earth knows my name and has Mm. led me into the places that he's led me like for a reason and Mm -hmm. part of discovering what that was about was my journey into the study of the history of christianity
0: in america (laughs) yeah (laughs) and those studies extended we can uh, maybe fast forward to that part of the story you studied where and where and and where Mm. and I did all sorts of stuff
1: I did. Well, I'm, you know, I, so I graduated high school and I went to the Toronto airport vineyard school of ministry Mm -hmm. for a Mm -hmm. year. So I did a gap year between high school and college in Toronto, and that would be 1995. So my one claim to like church history fame is that I held the door for John Wimber on the day that he (laughs) and his little team came to uh, sort things out with the Toronto. Vineyard. Oh, wow. uh, So uh, uh, not just any day. No, okay. no. I always think if I had locked the door, you know, I could have changed the course of the history of the vineyard.
2: But <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so I was there for a year. I mean, praying for people every night and uh, or, you know, four nights a week, leading worship all the time. And uh, really just having an incredible experience of what it means to participate like real time in a in a, a renewal, like in a move of God, mm. where people were saying some of the stuff we've seen here is like the stuff that Christians have seen historically, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the guy, there was a, a guy who wrote a book called his name was Guy Chevro. He wrote a book called Catch the Fire, which was kind of like an mm. early ass- assessment of what was happening in Toronto. Mm. And there was a whole chapter on Jonathan Edwards, who I would later study, and I know mm. we're going to talk about a little bit in relationship to the uh, first great awakening. But he um, was basically saying, Look, I mean, if you compare what happened in the first great awakening to a lot of what we're seeing here, there's a lot yeah. of analogy, especially mm-hmm. in terms of like the stuff people are experiencing. So it was amazing to get to be part of that. And then I headed off uh, to the mm-hmm. University of Chicago, where I did my undergrad, and um, ended up being part of a vineyard church plant there Hyde Park Vineyard Church. And, mm-hmm. Connected with a bunch of the Chicago Vineyard folks, Steve Nicholson, Ted Kim, Rand Tucker, um, Jordan Sang, a bunch of others. And um, mm-hmm. and then from there, I, I went straight from college, which had been like left foot scholarship, right foot uh, church planting kind of ministry yeah. stuff. So mm-hmm. I basically developed a life where study... And ministry were, like, intimately connected, right? It was Mm -hmm. never, like, a choice between one or the other. And I never really experienced there being, like, a huge amount of tension between, like, you know, the life of the mind versus the life of the spirit. To me, it's always Mm -hmm. been, like, well, these are one thing. Like, if we're created beings and truth comes from God, like, we shouldn't be afraid of learning about reality, right? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that's definitely not a given in a lot of contexts, though. Well, I've come to find that out subsequently mm-hmm. you know one of the great gifts my parents gave me was not only did they love the lord and teach me the bible and like live lives of sort of passionate supernaturalism but they also mm-hmm. uh really encouraged my studies and sort of my uh life in school maybe too much <laughs> but but it but it let it gave me that gift of never pulling those two things apart like there was no sort of fundamentalist modernist controversy in the life of me
2: <laughs> you know mm-hmm.
1: and yeah. uh
0: and so well, so that, that Caleb, was helpful. by contrast but for what it's worth by contrast that actually was my experience I had a number of people tell me when i went to school hey if you go to school um, you're going to lose the anointing. I, I mm-hmm. heard that probably 10 times from different people saying, you'll mm-hmm. no longer be anointed if you go to school. And I thought, what a, what a strange and horrible conclusion to draw. I'm glad I didn't believe it, frankly.
1: Well, that is, that is good. I mean, so my story, this is kind of interesting is that, so On uh, my third year of college, uh, a bunch of us from the Hyde Park Vineyard church plant went down to a, a conference in Illinois. It was in Bloomington, Illinois. Um and it was a prophetic conference that that was billed as a prophetic conference you know so you never know what you're gonna get right (laughs) and and we were late because we were late for everything in those days walked in probably 40 minutes late um and the meeting had begun the worship was over and this prophetic guy whoever he was he was just an older guy i don't actually know who it was um was beginning to speak. And we walk in the back, and he stops the meeting when we're walking in the back of the room. And he looks at me, he points me out. And I'm like, Oh, Lord, you know, did I remember mm-hmm. to confess all my sins already? <laughs> <You know? laughs> yes. It's either yeah. the best
0: or worst thing is about exactly
1: that. <laughs> this could be terrible. But he says, um, I saw you in a dream last night. And the Lord wow. wants to say to you, Jonathan Edwards and I was like wow. oh that's interesting and he says the lord wants to say to you you're going to have a two track ministry of the word of god and the power of the spirit wow and he said a bunch of other things too but i was like really arrested by this going mm-hmm. like i haven't actually ever read any jonathan edwards so i went home from wow. this conference i still have the notes it was kind of a powerful moment uh, but mm-hmm. but i went home from this thing and i used amazon for the first time so that tells you it was like <laughs> 1999 right uh-huh. And I ordered some Jonathan Edwards books from Amazon, which Jeff Bezos Mm. probably hand-delivered to the mail slot, you know, (laughs) (laughs) back in the day. And uh, anyway, I spent the summer uh, doing some writing and other stuff for school, but I spent the summer reading Edwards and discovering Mm. that there was not just a, a small connection, but like a fundamental connection between a kind of, the you know the history of Revival and Awakening in, in the in mm-hmm. in America and really in uh the sort of Atlantic world if you like, right because mm-hmm. Edwards was corresponding with people all all around sort of Europe and North America um a, a big connection between that and the kind of a, a awareness of uh historic Christianity and sort of the intellectual, tradition of the modern west to put it that way right Mm -hmm. so the stuff i was studying in school whether it be like philosophy or theology or literature or science um was uh wedded in the minds of the Mm -hmm. earliest american revivalists uh to the work of god right there was no Mm -hmm. disconnection there and that was very Mm -hmm. encouraging to me to find Mm -hmm. out later on that like, you know, the first thing that Jonathan Edwards ever published was actually a science paper. He was observing Mm. the behavior of spiders, (laughs) like spiders hanging from trees in in his neighborhood. And he, and he wrote Mm -hmm. to the Royal, uh, I forget what it was, the Royal society of science or something uh, to describe what he was seeing because his own awareness, even as a young man was all truth is gods. And really the way he, the way he put it is, uh, the the whole world is filled with images and shadows of divine things. That's the language mm-hmm. that he used. He said, everything mm-hmm. that you see around you in the created order is an image and a shadow that kind of shines forth the realities mm-hmm. of God. And mm-hmm. so to look at the natural world was to look in a way at like a big, beautiful typology or metaphor that God mm-hmm. had put in front of his people who he loves to be continually showing them in small ways and in big ways what it means to be a people created, uh, stuck in sin, redeemed by mm. Jesus and awaiting the final consummation of the kingdom. And mm. so that kind of beautiful way of thinking, it, I just, it was given to me like a gift. So I ended up mm. studying Edwards and then I kind of followed Edwards uh, to Yale Divinity School, which is where uh, all his papers were. So I, I got, I applied for MDiv programs all over, got the most scholarship from Yale. So I followed the money uh, <laughs> nice. to Yale. And um, when I was there, discovered all these um, Edwards things were there. So I ended up getting a job working at the Jonathan Edwards Center at Yale after I um, got my MDiv. And I was the associate director there. And um mm-hmm essentially uh, worked on creating a digital edition of Edwards's papers and also a public face for what had been just like a, pu- it was like a publishing project for 50 years, kind of like the works of Jonathan Edwards. We yeah. made it into like a study center so people could mm. come. And now there's like 15 around the world study centers wow. on Edwards stuff. And then from there, I, you know I worked on that for several years and ended up applying for a PhD, uh, in American religious history, which I did at Princeton university. Um, and all the while I was doing ministry stuff, we planted a church in new Haven as, as you know, and so led that for a while, moved to New York to Philadelphia was on staff of various vineyard churches in that time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, now I'm here. Yeah. And tell us, um, about the role you're in now as the, the and mm I'm a associate national director of uh, Vineyard USA for theology and education specifically. So what we're doing is we're trying to resource um, pastors and churches uh, theologically uh, and educationally. So basically what it is, it's, it's all about equipping, right? I mean, nothing works if it doesn't work for the local churches, right? Mm-hmm. We're not trying to create, you know, intellectual or educational infrastructure. What we're trying to do is resource pastors and churches to be uh, equipped for the work of ministry. And mm-hmm. part of what that means is becoming articulate about our theological identity in ways that mm-hmm. all, in the vineyard a lot of stuffs like implied. Right? Mm-hmm. We're getting a lot more clear uh, around. Yeah, we definitely
0: we definitely have a theological identity, oh, but yeah. we haven't necessarily done the work to to write it down and be very clear about what those things are.
1: That's right. And a lot of times I think we've kind of outsourced some of our theological mm-hmm. identity to, you know, various thinkers along the way in, the, in our history. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it be like, you know, Jack Deere or like, you know, at one point it was Wayne Grudem and then it's like, Whoa, Whoa, mm-hmm. not Wayne Grudem, you know? <laughs> like, yes. so, so there's all kinds of, there's all kinds Wright of right to this day. N.T. Yeah, right? Wright. Mm-hmm. And there's all kinds of elements to that. But I think, You know it's it's incumbent on us in the vineyard at at this point just to be more clear about the sources and trajectories of our own identity so how how do we connect to the historic church how do we understand the ministries of our pastors in relationship to the ministry we see laid out in the new testament the life of jesus uh in the early church and then connected really to the whole history of israel in the old testament as well Mm -hmm right? How do we understand our story in relationship to the unique identity of the vineyard as a part of that whole trajectory of church Mm -hmm. history? And then like, what are we experiencing now? Right? I mean, Mm -hmm. anybody who's even leading a small group, I mean, I'm sure there's folks listening to this in your church who are small group leaders or worship leaders, or they do ministry of one sort or another, or at least they know somebody who does, right? We all have our experience in doing that, right? And mm-hmm. so the way that we experience our life with God really as like signposts and ambassadors of the kingdom is connected to to all that work as well. So, mm-hmm. I mean, again, it's a long story probably for another mm-hmm. podcast, but we could talk yeah. about just what it means for us uh, to be people whose identity is not just rooted in my own experience of life with God and the way that I'm out there trying to like share it, but really that who we are as Followers of Jesus and as pastors and leaders, it, we're we're emerging from an entire um, an entire history of of the work of the Spirit and the life of the church. We stand mm-hmm. on the shoulders of giants, which means mm-hmm. we don't get to make things up, right? That's right. And we've been given amazing gifts that are ours to steward in this moment, right? Mm-hmm.
2: So absolutely, that's well, I love
0: it. I'm thinking about it love the work that you're doing man we could that you're right it is another podcast but <laughs> when I think about your role um, as the andD for theology and education I think that is just the scope of that seems infinite mm-hmm. but I feel that way about all the a and Ds and then I think well before that we didn't even have a and Ds so yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> We're definitely moving in the right direction on that. It seems like you've got 10 people's jobs, but I'm, I'm grateful for, for what you're doing, man. Excited about the oh, thanks, trajectory. Man. We see things going on in Vineyard USA. We've talked cool. about that a bit um, on the podcast in, in the past. We're just really, really excited about how things are going. Although I know it's a work in progress. A lot of work behind the scenes that you have got to
1: start just got to start and then keep going
0: <laughs> right? yeah. yeah that's right <laughs> so let me ask you now if you take off your a and d hat and and put on your professor hat and then right. uh, give us uh again like uh again there's a whole whole group of folks listening to this all different backgrounds if you could just um give us the broad picture like what happened what what's the story of the first great awakening and then we'll just see where we dial in from there
1: yeah. Well, it's funny when you ask a historian, how did a thing start? They'll take <laughs> you, keep you going further a, and
0: further back. Yeah, it?
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, God said, let point. there be light. Exactly. But, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but um, I think to think about it, like in the context of sort of the U S and sort of the early uh, colonial era sort of before the founding of the nation right there were a bunch Mm -hmm. of different groups of people who uh found their way to the eastern shores of what has become the united states and some of them were um called puritans people coming from uh you know england some of them were uh from scotland or ireland who I get many of those folks ended up in the part of the country where you guys live now. The Scotch Irish mm-hmm. folks, right? Yes. Uh, some of them were from Europe, like the Moravians, right, mm-hmm. or the Dutch who showed up in in, in New Jersey, uh, New York area. New Amsterdam was you know, uh, what was New York City was originally called, right? So mm-hmm. there there were people coming and, and many, many of the people who came as colonists, uh, for one reason or another, whether they came to build an economic future, or they came to build a kind of religious community, which many of them did, they were, some of them were fleeing uh, religious oppression, or even kind of institutionalized religion that they felt kind of hemmed in the gospel and connected it Mm -hmm. too much to a national identity that felt too controlled, you know, but many, many of those people were seeking God, in one way or another, (laughs) right? And particularly the folks uh, who settled in New England and in New York uh, were seeking God in a manner that we would sort of recognize as being part of the beginnings of the evangelical movement, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, evangelical is an interesting word, right? Because it, it means something politically to us now. Right. If you read like political polls, folks will talk about how evangelicals are voting. Right. So there's that side. There's also the kind of theological or the heart posture of an evangelical. Right. People who, you know, believe firmly in the active work of God in history today, who believe that the Bible is like very much authoritative in in sort of fundamental ways. People who believe in the importance of conversion and the importance of mission right? I mean, mm-hmm. there are a number of different ways we could talk about that. Some people would even say that, you know, an evangelical because they love uh, hymns, and they have small groups. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they love to worship and sing, and, and they have small groups, mm-hmm. which actually is pretty important, right? A lot of the way mm-hmm. that evangelical faith is carried is, is through vehicles like that. So you've got a political, you've got like a sort of lived theology, and then you've also got a history, right? I mean, the evangelical movement has a history, so it has a beginning. It's not like evangelical Christianity was the kind of Christianity that was being practiced in the first century. I mean there's analogies right. that we can talk about. Mm-hmm. But I think a really helpful way to think about evangelicalism as such is is to think about the fact that that it has a beginning. And so mm-hmm. the the evangelical movement historically is beginning around the same time that folks are beginning to settle in uh the colonies on the eastern shore of what's now the united states right and those
0: those settlers i guess caleb would sort of in a way the process of uh, coming across the ocean which was a risky proposition Mm -hmm. um diving into incredible amounts of uncertainty when you go from one continent to the next hundreds of years ago um i guess it's sort of self-selected for some some pioneers, some people Mm -hmm. who would be aggressive or not aggressive, but um, very um, willing to take a risk and motivated around that. And I think that maybe helped shape what we've come to understand evangelicalism to be some of that, those personality traits, um, absolutely self-selected in the people who came over. Right.
1: Oh, I mean, absolutely. And, you know, it's again, like, it's complicated. I feel like as a, as a historian, I'm almost like obligated it's to say it's complicated, right? It's like mm-hmm. smoking causes cancer. You know, you got to put it on the box, <laughs> but, um, but it, you know, historian puts, it's complicated on the box, but, but yes, I think there's a, there's a, um, kind of person who shows up they their risk taker, um, maybe in certain ways, a dreamer, maybe people who sort of uh, are moving towards what they take to be new, right? Mm -hmm. This is the future, right? Is unconstrained in certain ways. But you wouldn't want to think of the colonies as like a sort of radically free place. These people are importing Mm -hmm. a whole bunch of cultural structures with them. Mm -hmm. The question is, well, how are they going to live within those structures in this Mm -hmm. new place, right? So the Brits are coming or the English are coming with the Church of England, over their mm-hmm. shoulder, and some of them are automatically saying, "We definitely want to reject that, <laughs> right?" Others, mm-hmm. like the ones who moved to Virginia, are saying, "No, no, we're you know we're going to have the Church of England in these United States or or in this mm-hmm. colony of Virginia, which you know becomes the United States." And so they're working out all these dynamics. And this probably isn't a place for like a lesson on the politics of that. Just to say that there was a lot of diversity, but there was also, I think. In in many of these people, a kind of hunger for an awareness of what God was doing in the world right now, Mm -hmm. whether that showed up in terms of like piety, like God, like lead us and show us your ways. Or if it showed up even politically where it was like, Lord, I guess we're on the vanguard of Christian civilization (laughs) Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. here in this wilderness, this supposedly unoccupied wilderness where all these inconvenient native (laughs) Americans are living. (laughs) Right. They're like, hi, we've been here for a long time. So that's a complicated story too um, for another time. But, (laughs) but what we start to see by the early 18th century is um, these kind of outbreaks of spiritual awakening. And uh, you know Thomas Kidd has a, a great little book uh, called The Great Awakening that uh, kind of maps the very beginnings of what would be described as the Great Awakening. But for my purposes, for our purposes today, I think one of the most helpful places to look is something uh, that happened in Northampton, Massachusetts in 1734. So 1734, there was something that historians call the Little Awakening, and they call Mm -hmm. it the Little Awakening because it preceded what most people sort of think of as like the great high point of the Great Awakening Mm -hmm. itself, which would be George Whitefield's preaching ministry from like 1739 to 1742. That was like this kind of climactic era of the Great Awakening, and it had ripple effects for, you know, arguably centuries, but certainly for decades. Mm -hmm. Anyway, preceding that in 1734 in Northampton, Massachusetts, where Jonathan Edwards was the local church pastor of the church in the town. And in those days, there was only one church in the town of Northampton uh, because Mm -hmm. it was a little kind of theocracy, essentially, where uh, Mm -hmm. the people who were members of the church were the only people who were allowed to vote on town business right wow. uh edwards the pastor was sort of the spiritual authority in the place and it was a complicated time because of course folks are developing wealth and and new politics are emerging uh in these places over generations so there was a kind of um interesting cultural moment where a lot of people were wondering number 1 what does it mean for me to be saved mm-hmm. right because you've got this central church in the town where this guy's preaching what amounts to sort of the a Calvinistic gospel, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they're wondering, well, am I or am I not among the elect? Am I mm-hmm. saved or am I not saved, sure. right? And then you've got what amounts to sort of the early ferment of democracy, right? I mean, this is 1734. 42 years later, you have 1776, right? A declaration mm-hmm. of independence from these sort of structures of the old world uh, because folks are realizing, well, actually out here in these colonies on this frontier, quote unquote, right? We're uh, in a place where um, democracy starts to make a whole lot more sense than, uh, you know, old world aristocracy. So what happens in 1734 is a bunch of young people start to come to Jonathan Edwards's office because they're troubled about their souls and he effectively starts mm. a small group with them and he says that, you know i'd be willing to talk with you about your life with god and your life of faith and one by one these people begin to experience conversion mm. uh and the conversion that they experience is is pretty emotional right mm. they they're coming to grips first with their own sin And Mm -hmm. then uh, with their despair at their own sin, and then with an encounter with the grace of God for them, and it's a small town where it starts to spread, right? And then Edward starts to notice that some of the older folks, now it's two interesting groups, the the young people Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. then the older folks, right? The older folks are kind of like burned over, right? They're like, been there, done Mm -hmm. that. We've seen all this stuff. Mm -hmm. If you start to see a movement of spiritual awakening among older folks, that's particularly notable as well. So Mm -hmm. the teenagers and the older folks all start to experience concern about the state of their souls and eventually end up in conversion. And this kind of like, it's like the, the, uh, the, you know, the top of the age range and the bottom of the age range, Mm -hmm. they just start to move together. And eventually uh, this starts to snowball. And um, by, the middle of that year uh everyone in the town has professed faith in jesus and been received uh for communion in the church so young and old people of uh all different social statuses um people who were uh native american people who were uh african-american some of whom uh I'm, I'm not sure about the status of enslaved people in Northampton. I'm not sure if there were any in that particular time. I would need to go back to that. But like all across social strata, this right. is happening. And people are beginning to testify in the church about the fact that they were convicted of their sin. They repented and they had an encounter with God, which led them to bear witness to saving faith. And they were received into the church. Mm. So it's this incredible thing. And the reason that we're talking about it today is not just that it happened, but it's that Edwards wrote a book Mm. (laughs) about this called A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God. Uh, Mm. I think of the conversion of souls in Northampton. I think that's the full title. And Uh um, that book starts to spread. He sends copies of it to Boston of the manuscript, and then the manuscript goes uh, over to London, gets translated into a bunch of languages and goes around, Mm. uh, you know, the Atlantic world, Mm. English-speaking German, Dutch, I can't remember all the languages, but it was translated into a lot of languages. And Northampton essentially becomes famous as a town in which um, God is at work, and, and they're wondering is this the beginning of the end of all things (laughs) they're like if everybody's being converted is this like the millennial dawn like what's going on here right and so they become kind of like a model community Hmm. a model revival community um what's interesting about that is that and you may want to ask me some questions about this (laughs) is that in the moment that they become famous, because they really do become internationally famous for being this Mm. model community. If you Mm. look at Edwards's sermons that he's preaching to his congregation at the time, he's basically saying to them, Hey guys, stop backsliding. Everybody in the world thinks we're a model community (laughs) that's revived and everything's been transformed because I wrote this book and now we're all famous, but look at you. Mm. You're like forgetting the things that God's done among us. Right? Mm. So All the while the world is thinking the millennium's dawning in Northampton, but he's realizing, wow, I have to pastor this revival. Revivals don't just come along and change everything, and then you're in a qualitatively new moment, right? And I think Mm -hmm. we see that a lot in the church now. People are like contending for revival. We need revival. If we only have revival, then everything will change. Well, one Mm -hmm. thing that we've learned— from the history of evangelical revivalism all the way back to its very beginning in American culture, is that revivals come, and they unite, and God does amazing things, and lots of people come to faith, but then human reality is not like effaced, right? People continue to sin. People still struggle. People backslide. They had someone Mm. uh, in their church who committed suicide during this time. Mm. And so Edwards Mm. has a very interesting pastoral message for people who are struggling with depression at the same Mm. time as they're wrestling with the state of their souls. It was his nephew, I think. So, I mean, there's so much to say about all this, but revival doesn't create perfection. It
0: creates mess. Maybe right. holy mess, but it creates mess. <laughs> uh-huh. That's right. Well, fire has to be followed by formation, and if not, you know, it can't be sustained. You know, and then we, even when you were saying it, and you said you want to ask me a question. My mind started racing with, "Oh, that sounds like a- an ideal of you of a utopian reality." Yes. And whenever people start framing things that way, it seems like devastation is soon to follow because that's just not the way things work in a fallen world. But it's interesting that the hope of that spread far and wide, but the reality mm-hmm. wasn't that, you know, Wimber talked about you you lead with life and then you build structure underneath that. Mm-hmm. And um, I just, I keep thinking of political, historical, all these other examples where, like, yeah, that's what happens when there's a great outpouring.
1: Well, I do think there's something to notice for me, it's very important that Edwards called his story about that uh, event, the little revival, um, the surprising work of God, hmm. right? This is something that God did. In Edwards' account of things, he's like, I wasn't doing anything different from what I was normally doing. Now, of course, you know, Northampton in the 1720s and 30s was an extremely churched environment right there was a lot of preaching Mm -hmm. going on people were very aware of the gospel it wasn't pluralistic in the manner that we would understand like our pluralistic democratic cities today right but but he was like i was just doing my thing and all of a sudden god started to move right Mm -hmm. and what they tried to do in that moment was be participants in a move that god had initiated and was going to have whatever effect it was going to have because god was sovereign over it all right mm-hmm. and i think what edwards began to realize was that conversion uh is a is a process and conversion in in many ways is an ongoing process Right. I mean, we see that in first Corinthians where Paul talks Mm -hmm. to the believers as both the saved and the being saved. Right. Mm -hmm. He says, you know, uh, the cross is foolishness to the perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, what does Paul mean? Does Paul mean that you're not saved until some far off point? No, because he talks to the Christians as also the saved. Right, Mm -hmm. I think what Mm -hmm. he's saying is that we always, to quote him again, work out our salvation with fear and trembling, meaning Mm -hmm. that uh, to be invited into life with God is to be invited into a process where over sustained periods of time, we learn to say yes to the things that God is saying (laughs) and to be obedient people who are participating in the things the Spirit is doing. And discipleship looks like conforming in so many mm-hmm. ways to that to participation in life with God. Conversion's a major event in that mm-hmm. process, and I think Edwards would say, you know, we we did see all kinds of conversion, but conversion in many ways was the beginning of the story, not the end mm-hmm. of it.
0: Yeah.
2: I, I, so I had a question because. Uh, wh- part of what you were sharing is really interesting to me in that you said that it was already a very churched society. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, uh, we're here in the Southeast. You're not Caleb, but you're talking to us here in the Southeast, uh, yeah. and very church society, you know, uh, in fact, our church, like we just, we just moved locations and our church is right behind right beside a, a huge church. And there's like three more big churches right up the road from us. You know, uh, yeah. I had a friend from Oregon this last week visiting, And uh, he came to our old church where we had this dumpster outside. From an organization called His Ground. They have dumpster services and law care services. And he was like, dude, your dumpsters are even Christian here. So, <laughs> and so so my point mm-hmm. to all this is that must mean there's no sin, right, Josh? There's just no, no sin. The, no <laughs> sinning are, in Maryville. We are <laughs> squeaky clean here. Yeah. No, but so it's it's just interesting to me that this happened um in an already very church, very Christian kind of society, and yet there needed to be a real work done. And so mm-hmm. um uh you said you know that edward framed it up as hey man this was an act of god which of course it was but it sounds like it was also some really curious young people so you really went kind of through that part really quickly what what i guess go into more detail and and mm-hmm. what happened there and how people got so turned on even in a christian society yeah well i think the i
1: think the way to think about it would be this um people who study Puritans so so you know there had been there had been a hundred years of Christian culture in that part of New England uh prior to the the events that we're talking about right so 1630s 40s people are showing up building towns and when they build towns they build churches and they have a way of being Christian in those churches right they're congregational churches but they're you know, broadly evangelical, they're Puritan. And 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 that Puritan spirituality has what scholars call it a morphology of conversion. That just means mm. there's a way of converting, right? And it starts with people becoming aware of their sinfulness. And then it starts and then it moves on to people sort of wrestling with God in a certain way. And then it ends up with them receiving a kind of grace that allows them to bear testimony to basically what amounts to the possibility that they're saved. I have evidence in my soul that I believe I'm among the elect because of the way that as I've wrestled with this conviction of my sin and uh, sort of despaired at my own ability, Uh, to deal with my sin i've come to grips with the fact that god has grace for me and now i want to stand in front of the church and testify that's what it meant to be converted for like a hundred years right Mm -hmm. so folks had a paradigm folks had a pattern for how you quote unquote become a christian Right. This Mm -hmm. might be similar to what I experienced in my Southern Baptist church, where it's like you listen to the preaching, maybe like a tear runs down your face. And then you're like, I Mm -hmm. need to go forward and I need to have like the deacon pray for me or the pastor do the thing. And then eventually I'll get baptized probably. Right. There's a way Mm -hmm. that this is done. What Edwards would say, I think, about the community that he was living in 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 the 1730s when this little awakening happened Was that in spite of all that teaching, in spite of all that awareness of what it meant to be converted, there was a kind of, I mean, there's many ways to describe it, a kind of lukewarmness, a kind of passivity, a kind of been there, done that. Kind of like, yeah, 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 we know this stuff is important, but like, let's Mm -hmm. live in reality. Like, you know, we want to do this and we want to do that. And maybe God likes it or maybe God doesn't. There might have been enough fear of God still sort of ambient in the culture that maybe Mm. folks would try to distance themselves from the church a little bit because they knew if they came too close to the church, it might start to make claims on them. So they would say, well, I'm going to postpone my Grappling with God. I'm gonna postpone my encounters with God until mm. later when I'm older. And we see this in the mm. whole history of the church, where actually mm. l- sometimes folks would sort of postpone their baptism until the end of their lives because they were afraid if I get baptized, we'll shoot. And then I start sinning again. Maybe the whole thing is just a sham, right? Maybe mm-hmm. it's not as powerful as it seems. So in in Edwards's world, all that churchedness. I think lent itself to a, it was almost like folks had been like immunized or like inoculated mm-hmm. against the power of the gospel precisely because it was everywhere
2: you know That's 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 really why I asked the question because it just sounds so similar there's so many similarities to I mean lots of people's backgrounds but I resonate as coming from the mm-hmm. southeast and and uh I I would even add to what you say I mean you know trust in tradition and families and you know there was a bible read over dinner you know, yep. every night. And so therefore mm-hmm. I must be okay, you know, or my parents had an incredible encounter, but, but, you know, um, yeah, that, that must mean I'm okay too, you know, or whatever. And so there's just a lot of similarities in, in what you're describing and where we're at.
1: Well, there was a thing in that time called the halfway covenant, and I don't have time to get into exactly what that meant, but basically what it meant in in simple terms is it was like, well, if we want to have a theocracy, but not everybody's experiencing conversion, how do we get people to be part of the society in a Mm. fulsome way? How can we say we're a Christian society? And the way that it worked is they would say, well, if your family had had some kind of experience with God, Mm. and if you were willing to participate halfway in the life of the church, then then you were allowed to participate as a a full member of the society, even if you hadn't had the encounter with God that it was all sort of predicated on, right? Mm -hmm. So I think you're putting your finger on something um, really important. And what Edward starts to notice in 1734 is that um, I think initially there was like, somebody died suddenly. There was like a disruptive event in, in mm. 1734, where a lot of the young people were like, man, we've been living in this kind of equilibrium. And then one of their friends died suddenly, and they just started to worry about um, whether they were living in alignment with God. Actually, here, I've got, I just found it on the, on the page here. He says, yeah, there was a young man who died, which was followed by the death of another young married woman, and um, he says, I believe this contributed much to the solemnizing of the spirits of the young people in the town. And in the fall, the young people started to uh, have religious meetings. I'm summarizing now. So they started to get together in the evenings after church to pray, the young folks, because mm. they were worried. They were like, are we like living in reality here? And then Edward says, people started to be put upon by uh, inquiry with concerns in their minds about what's the way of salvation and and does God actually accept us? Then he says some people ridiculed it, some people found fault with it. But for those who were seriously seeking God, they started to find God. And he says, there was a great concern about the things of religion beginning in December of 1734 and going all the way through the beginnings of 1735 until in a very short time, it became universal throughout the time among old and young, from the highest to the lowest. Everyone was seized with a deep concern about their eternal salvation. And he goes on. I mean, you can look at this stuff, but but the, the bottom line of it is, all that kind of normal way that people were supposedly going to be converted, all the sort of normal pathways for becoming a respectable citizen kind of got thrown out because folks were seized like existentially. What does Mm. it mean for me to actually be in real right relationship with God? And that came, you know, all you guys have been in ministry for a while. All of us know people where it's like, they're just kind of tooling along doing whatever they're doing. And then all of a sudden somebody nearby them dies or someone has a crisis in their marriage. And pretty soon they're like, look, I need to like sit on your porch with you tonight and figure out how to get Mm. right with God. I think that started to um,
0: happen in Northampton
1: and the spirit breathed on it. Mm.
0: Yeah. I think you're hitting on one of the themes I kind of wanted you to address, which is, uh, one of the markers of the first great awakening, and it's beautiful and good. It's also one of the critiques of it is mm. the in, just the intense emotional experiences, yes. and how it was. In some sense, I think what you're highlighting is that, uh, whereas people in the past felt that their um, in that context, they felt that their conversion was validated by their piety and their sort of intellectual assent um, to believe sort of the doctrines. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this other sense in which it was confirmed by the profound and intense experiences and encounters with the love and the power of God. Yes. And that's part of what was happening. And then that's also part of what is I, if I'm seeing it right, gets, makes it frowned upon historically, even though it was kind of what the Lord was doing. I wonder what you'd say about that.
1: Oh man. There's so much to say about that. You're putting yeah. your finger on the heart of a ton of really important things. I mean, the first thing I would say is that there were a ton of people who didn't love the emergence of revivalism. So this thing in 30, 1734 is the beginning of really a wave of revivalism that sweeps through uh, the colonies uh, and, and, and gives shape to a way of being Christian for a very long time. I mean, we could even say that we're sort of still living with some of the effects of the ways that folks began to reimagine. What does it mean to have a faith that's not just right doctrine, but also fiery heart, right? What does Mm -hmm. it mean for me to Mm -hmm. have a kind of piety that's like alive and sort of fundamentally driving me in terms of obedience, in terms of risk-taking, in terms of faithfulness to God in all kinds of ways, but that's also tethered to uh, you know, theological orthodoxy. It's also tethered mm-hmm. to the preaching of scripture. And immediately almost honestly, almost immediately you start to see the full spread of all that stuff, right? You see mm-hmm. people who are like, we don't like this revival stuff. There was a preacher who wrote a letter who called it who said darkness has fallen on the land of light (laughs) when the revival came, he was like, we were the land of light before. And now these crazy people have showed up and they're (laughs) messing up our churches and they're doing all these weird things because, um, you know, they're filled with a kind of piety that an orderly preacher Mm -hmm. thought was darkness. Right. Mm -hmm. So you got the resistors, but then Mm -hmm. on the other side, you've got the folks who get lit up, by the power and love of God, and they become filled with passionate intensity and start Mm -hmm. running around New England asking preachers to prove that they are converted, right? So there are these sort of infamous moments where... You know, revivalists uh, would show up in town and they would interview the minister in the town. And after they talked to him, they would call him brother if they believed he was converted and friend if they believed he wasn't converted. Right. And so you have an incredible (laughs) just an incredible sort of wave of spiritual elitism and the kind of judgmentalism Mm -hmm. of those who take themselves to be like on the side of the revival. Mm-hmm. Like, i mean look we see all this stuff today too
0: sure right? deal I mean, without maturity
1: right deal without maturity that leads to a kind of judgment of others which ultimately becomes judgment on us one of the great principles of the reformation is that the finger always points in anything mm-hmm. that you're identifying in somebody else is something that you should be examining your own soul for right yeah that's and right. And so these guys fell into that instantly. But there's a bigger point to your question, Aaron, that I think is is really worth reflecting on. There's a famous um, episode at the end of the life of George Whitfield. So for, you know, for folks who don't know, you know, this early awakening uh, leads to a bunch of people becoming really desirous of revival. And there's a handful of people who start to preach, uh, itinerantly they would go from town to town preaching revival. and the most famous of those was George Whitfield, friend of John Wesley. He was an Anglican minister, tons of connections to Methodism, tons of connections to New England Congregationalism. He actually mm-hmm. sat in Edwards' church and he preached and Edwards mm-hmm. sat in the front row and wept the whole time. There's lots mm-hmm. to say about Whitfield. Uh, he's got some complicated history and relationships to slavery that folks need to pay mm-hmm. attention to. All these guys were not only products of their time, but had blind spots that are questions of discipleship that needs to be mm-hmm. attended to. That's another podcast that I would love to have, mm-hmm. but but mm-hmm. at this time, at this time, let's think about the end of Whitfield's life. He's coming to the end of his life, and he he was reflecting on his ministry, and he called it. He used this weird phrase, a rope of sands. And what he meant by that was, I tried to build a thing that people could hang on to, and it turned mm. out that so much of what I built turned to sand in their hands. Now, what does he mean wow. by that? Is he regretful of everything that he's done? No, he's not. But he's comparing himself to John Wesley, he mm. who is his dear friend. He's comparing mm-hmm. himself to to what the Wesleys built with Methodism. And he's saying, mm-hmm. I went all over the English-speaking world preaching revival i mean mm-hmm. he drew crowds in philadelphia he drew a crowd of a hundred thousand people imagine mm-hmm. preaching without, without microphones a, preaching without a <laughs> microphone benjamin uh-huh. franklin was the sort of one of the mm-hmm. main printers in philadelphia at the time mm-hmm. he prints uh whitfield's uh journals and other things and he he actually donated to whitfield's ministry even though franklin mm-hmm. himself wasn't a believer he was yeah, just so but they amazed. were close
0: friends weren't they
1: well, he was amazed by the effectiveness of what Whitfield was doing. It was a phenomenon. Honestly, I mean, uh, there's a historian called Harry Stout who became a good friend of mine. He was my boss at Yale. But he he said Whitfield was the first celebrity in the Western world. And, yeah. and what he's talking about is this. So if we have questions about celebrity culture in Christianity, Whitfield in many ways is a, is a, a progenitor of some of that. And Mm -hmm. as he's reflecting on his life at the end of his life Mm -hmm. he's saying honestly i built a bunch of experiential opportunities Mm -hmm. for people to have encounters with god and many 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 of them did right Mm -hmm. but whitfield says in spite of all that encounter i never built something with structure Mm -hmm. wesley's built something with structure And Mm -hmm. it turns out, looking forward historically, it was the Methodist church that transformed the United States. It was the Methodist church that missionized the entire uh, sort of U.S. frontier. And there was, Mm -hmm. I mean, these churches that we're describing now, the Congregational Presbyterian churches that got caught up in the first Great Awakening, you know, within uh, 75 years or so, those entire Mm -hmm. denominations are dwarfed by Methodism, mm. right? Mm-hmm. They're just dwarfed by it. Now there's lots of sociological reasons for that, but the evangelism of the United States happened primarily through the work of the Methodist Church. And why was mm. that? That was because the Wesleys built structures through which this kind of revival uh, spirituality could move. You could think mm-hmm. of it like a river in its banks, right? The Methodists Mm -hmm. had a method, (laughs) Mm -hmm. now they got the name, right? Mm -hmm. And their method was, you know, small groups and simple preaching and sacramental Mm -hmm. Christian faith that was administered by circuit riders who would ride around calling people into community with one another. Sometimes they would get there before the postal service or the army before there was roads, right? Wow. Um, These guys were uh, heroically courageous in their missional activity, But they didn't come with just the kind of wild power of the spirit and a Bible just preaching. Mm -hmm. They came with an awareness that they were part of a movement that had certain Mm -hmm. sets of structures that would call people into a way of life. A way of life that had boundaries, a way of life that had structures for discipline, a way of life that was connected to the historic and the global church through its teaching You know, the Wesley sent their preachers out with saddlebags filled with the writings of the early church fathers, sort of spiritual classics over time. So, again, you know, I, I hope I'm not speaking too broadly here, Aaron, but like to your point about how does all this stuff fit together, right? Some people loved it, some people didn't love it, but even the folks who participated in the revivals at the time, even the famous people, the celebrities of the day, as they're looking back on their lives, they're saying, or at least Whitfield is saying, I wish I had built something that had more structure so that folks didn't only have experiences, but they had a fireplace for that fire to be in.
2: Mm, They had banks
1: for that river to flow through.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. I think that's a lesson for us, you know? For sure.
0: And I think it's worth noting that You know the Wesley brothers, they were not unemotional eggheads um, who quenched the spirit uh, because they were unengaged in the fire or the zeal of what was happening. Um, They were incredibly passionate. And the fact that they put some structures in place Mm -hmm. didn't quench the spirit, didn't take away their zeal because that's the tension on the other side as well. If you add too much structure and and you can't add too much structure to be clear, yeah. but if you start doing that then you're going to quench the life of the spirit and like that's not what happened to the methodists at all no it's not quite quite
1: the opposite is what happened uh mm-hmm. although it is interesting uh it is interesting to notice that uh the methodist way found itself very much in tension with the way of american democracy early on right i mean the mm-hmm. methodists were sort of growing up in the us uh or it, you know, in the colonies that were becoming the U.S. Um, around the time that the Revolutionary War was happening, and and the folks who were Methodists, technically they they had allegiance to the Anglican Church at the time, right? Mm-hmm. Which was unpopular during the Revolutionary War for obvious sure. reasons, right? You don't want to have allegiance to English sort of political structures and theological structures, so uh, they really, in some ways, had to go to ground. And then the Methodists always have lived in a kind of grappling tension with American democratic sensibilities, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, hot on the heels of the Methodists would be the Baptists, right? Mm
2: -hmm. And the
1: Methodist church had the structure to evangelize uh, the American frontier moving from east to west. Um, But the Baptists were doing similar things, too. And so there are questions worth asking about the way that structures... Can function, and and the Methodist structure is not the only one that worked. But I think mm-hmm. what the Great Awakening showed, and what what Whitfield certainly believed at the end of his life, was without structure, um, things just fall apart. Right? There's mm-hmm. a so one of my friends has a phrase. He says, often institutions can be the enemy of good practice, right? Mm. But without institutions, there is no practice. yeah that's great you can have experiences all day but for something to become a practice it's got to have some sort of structure internal to it that Mm -hmm. gives you a way of even knowing what you're talking about
0: yeah and without hijacking the conversation to another big subject i I cannot help but think but where we're at in the life of the vineyard and vineyard usa is we're Mm -hmm. we're sorting all those things out this this movement that was born out of an incredible outpouring of the spirit like great move of god and then, um, you know, efforts have been made and they've been fruitful to, to an extent to to institutionalize, to build some structures, to give some banks for the river, as you were saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, it's a huge challenge to do it, especially once the plane's in the air. But I'm really, I'm proud of Vineyard USA for, for doing that work at this point. And obviously you and Jay um, and some of the other national leaders are leading that work, but mm-hmm. we're, we're right there, right? I think so.
1: And I mean, It's important to notice, since we're talking about the Methodists, like it's important to notice that one of the core values in Methodism was continually inviting the Spirit to renew the church. And Mm -hmm. even John Wimber talked about this. He talks about the need for continual institutional renewal, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not like what you do when you have a move of the Spirit is you develop a fireplace for the fire and you realize, okay, we've got the perfect fireplace now, and so the fire is just going to keep burning. Not at all. Right. There's always a sense that you must keep remaining open to the things that God is doing at all times. It's a discipline Mm -hmm. of leadership. Right. And the temptation for institutionalization or the temptation Mm -hmm. for denominational ism is to Mm -hmm. build stuff that kind of runs on its own. And then, you know, hopefully there's fire. But, yeah, you know, at the end of the day, the thing's still going to run. That's like yeah. anathema. That's the worst, right? That's, and right? that's that's respectability in its worst sense, right? Mm. But but I think in that we're looking at a moment where we need to say, Lord, like lead us to build in the right kind of way, so that we can, you know, have some banks for the river to run in. I, I do think that that's that's the moment that we're in, and and I honestly I think that that's stewardship. Mm -hmm. Right. I I think that that's what it looks like to recognize that God is actually at work. Right. The Lord has given us a gift to steward because just because you pray, come Holy Spirit, and just because you're involved in a move of God, in certain ways, what that means to me is that now there's more work to do. If God's given you a gift, you better take care of it. Right. I think Mm -hmm. one of the kind of um, perennial afflictions of charismatic uh, churches or revivalistic churches is that leaders can sort of be lulled into the thought that what i need to do is pursue the next wave or the next wave or mm. the next wave as soon as things feel like oh man they're cooling down i need to go find like a new blazing hot fire, fire. and that might actually be like Leaving your marriage when you realize that you don't feel the same way that you did when you first met. (laughs) Wow. Right. I mean, I think it may actually have that degree of foolishness attached to Mm -hmm. it. Because when God is moving, we have to assume that God is moving purposefully. God is giving gifts that are actually intended for our maturity, for the building up of the body, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, right? Mm -hmm. And so for us to learn how to stay put and recognize as one of my favorite thinkers says that I'm never against revival, but all we have to remember is that God is just as much at work in times that are not revival Mm -hmm. as in times of revival. God is always working. God is always building. As Jesus says, you know, my father is always at work Mm -hmm. and therefore I'm looking to see what the father is doing. And so I think for those of us who've been born, as I have, born in renewal, I mean, literally, the fundamentals of my discipleship showed up, like, Mm -hmm. in wild renewal meetings in Toronto in 1995, Mm -hmm. right? So I'm an unreconstructed renewalist, like, all the way to the ground. (laughs) Uh And what I'm aware of is that the move right now is neither Mm -hmm. to run off and try to go find another Toronto moment— nor is it to say, oh, those immature people where there's a new renewal, like the worst mm-hmm. is when the people from the renewal before make fun of or talk badly about the people from yeah. the new thing. We want neither of those things. What we're called to do is steward what we've been given. Yeah. And I think that's the work That's the work in front of us right mm-hmm. now
0: in the vineyard. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And it's good work. It's important. I wonder if we could hit. So maybe one more theme here, because I, I think it might be on folks' folks minds um when we're talking about particularly jonathan edwards Mm. uh, we've been talking about puritans um (laughs) if somebody calls you if someone calls you puritanical it's usually not a compliment Um, yeah right exactly (laughs) so um particularly you know when you know the average the average person at least in our context runs across jonathan edwards it's because they they read sinners in the hands of an angry God. Yes, And uh, I mentioned to you earlier, Caleb, that I, I remember sitting in an English literature class or, uh, or yeah, we were, um we'd all read, we'd all read that as required reading mm-hmm. and um, being the most at the time, sort of the most sort of vocal Christian. I was the only person in the class who was like actively going and preaching places <laughs> in yes. that, I think junior year of high school, mm-hmm. the whole class looking at me, basically looking for an explanation, like, mm-hmm. I thought Jesus was awesome. And this Jonathan Edwards guy seems really grumpy and angry. Um, and there's, I, I'd love it if you could give us some, some context around that, some ways yeah. to maybe start getting our heads around attention that we might feel based on memories of reading that sermon. Oh yeah, totally. People who study Edward like,
1: uh, who li- live in that Jonathan Edwards studies world refer to it as that damn sermon mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's the, yeah. it's, because it's the only one that people know, right? Yes, and yeah, I mean, as with so many things, I think context is everything. Um, Edwards, I mean, Edwards. In there's there's a few things to say. The first is that obviously Edwards is preaching for effect, right? Mm. He's trying to, in the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, make people aware of their own nature in relationship to the nature of God as he understands it. Now, I think probably we don't think of God in the same manner that Jonathan Edwards did all the time, right? I mean, I think it would be a red flag in the life of a preacher or a pastor if they primarily characterized God as angry, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the truth about Jonathan Edwards is that he didn't primarily characterize God as angry either. Which isn't like the thing to do here is not to make excuses for Edwards. I think, you know, if he was alive in 2023, I would want to talk to him about, you know, the wisdom of preaching in this way, you know, but, Mm -hmm. so just because somebody's a product of their environment doesn't excuse or justify the manner in which they ministered. But what he was trying to do was give a full picture of who God is. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, part of, in, in certain ways, I think that the corrective that Ed, Edwards's theology would bring to a lot of the theology or the preaching of today is that oftentimes we preach about the love of God without mm. preaching first about the loveliness of God, mm. right? Mm. So for Edwards, he wants to talk to you first about who God is, And he wants to let you see God in all of God's characteristics so that you can then say, wow, there is a massive gap between who I am and who God is. And then Edwards can talk about the way that Mm. Jesus in his excellency and beauty and loveliness and sort of astonishingness uh, creates the ability for us as fallen creatures to know the loveliness of God and Mm. thus like also the love of God for us. Now, you know, you can sort of, it's all very well to say that, but he's still preaching about how people, God is, you know, we're dangling over the pit of hell, like a spider Mm. on a thin thread, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and Edwards believed that. He believed Mm -hmm. that apart from the goodness of God, apart from the sustaining mercy of God, uh, as he puts it there, you know, using the scripture verse, their foot shall slide in due time, (laughs) meaning Mm -hmm. you shall slip and fall into the pit of hell if that should happen to you. But with Edwards, there's always this sense of you have to understand the whole picture of who God is in order to understand the actual nature of the love of God. And, Mm -hmm. you know some of us have grown up in environments where god was taught as an angry demanding taskmaster and -hmm. what we need to hear is about the unconditional beautiful love and acceptance and embrace of god right and that's probably more important for a lot of people today uh than edwards understood it to be for people in his day right yeah on the other hand I think we do stand in danger from time to time of preaching about God as if God is a sort of warm and fuzzy Mm -hmm. sort of super grandpa, whose primary Mm -hmm. role is to affirm us in our desires. Mm -hmm. And Edwards would have absolutely no time for that because he would say rightly that that's not what the Bible teaches about God. Mm -hmm. There is a, you know, uh, There is a picture of love and loveliness that we get Mm -hmm. from the scripture about who God is that is so much more nuanced, complex, rich, rugged, generative, nurturing, Mm -hmm. um, profound, uh, transcendent, than any of the kind of simple pictures of the love of God that some of us kind of like to take as like an Mm -hmm. antidote to God's not angry. Therefore, God (laughs) must be like super warm and fuzzy and just want all the things that I want for me. You know, Jesus wants me for a sunbeam. Jesus wants to give me a Ferrari. (laughs) You know, Uh Jesus (laughs) just wants me to like sit here and have another glass of scotch. (laughs) Right. And, and there, and there's, all kinds of things to say about that. Well, you know, mm-hmm. so a couple lessons to take away. Number one, you can't judge any preacher by their only ser- by one sermon.
2: That's right. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. Number two, it could be that Edwards is uh, Edwards would regret the fact that that sermon or that damn sermon, as Edwards scholars mm-hmm. often call it. um has gone around the world as like the calling card uh for this mm-hmm. is what edward's spirituality is like if i were to recommend mm-hmm. an edward sermon to read i would recommend one called heaven is a world of love which mm-hmm. you can google or another one mm-hmm. called the excellency of christ uh these would be sermons that i think more adequately capture edward's whole theology yeah. but in a revival meeting which is where Sinners mm-hmm. in the Hands of an Angry God was preached, he's calling sinners to repentance. And he's right. saying, basically, I want to create a dramatic effect. It's the sermonic equivalent of a horror movie. Mm. He's trying to do <laughs> a horror movie yeah. so that you come to grips with your existential reality and bend the knee to Christ. Mm-hmm. That's his, that's his yeah. intention.
0: Sure. And, you know, I would add to it just – when you talk about the picture we have of the loveliness of God, it does include his justice. Yeah. Um, but we sort of pick and choose the different aspects of justice. And, and, uh, I don't think Edwards would have any part of that either. I want to maybe add one thing to your recommendations of if you want to get a feel for what Edwards is about. Mm-hmm. Um, most people would say I, I've, I've, read or heard about sinners in the hands of an angry God. So I know what he's about. Yeah. I would recommend, um, the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards. Mm. So at, when he was, I think, pretty young, he made a list of things that were, he would resolve to do and that he, the type of man that he would be, yeah. which is a, actually a really fascinating list. It's got some really beautiful things. It's got a couple things that made me laugh out loud. Um, but on yeah, exactly. that list, I think there's, I think there's 70 or something like that, but mm. number 25 on that list, he said that he's resolved to examine carefully and constantly what that one thing in me is, which causes me in the least to doubt the love of God and to direct all my forces against it. This Mm -hmm. is a man who said, if anything will cause me to doubt God's absolute, beautiful, um, limitless, perfect, unconditional love, then I'm going to turn all of my resources against that doubt um, so that I embrace fully. I I think you get a, a better picture of his heart in that. Well, that's
1: true. And I mean, Edwards's spirituality was underwritten by what he called the divine and supernatural light, which mm-hmm. was the thing that comes and um, moves on a person's soul when they're coming into contact with God. He calls it a new sense of the heart. He mm-hmm. says there there are ways in which when when you are coming to grips with God and when you're get, getting to know God, it's like you get a, a literal new sense of your heart. He compares it uh, to being told about the taste of honey versus actually tasting honey. Mm. He says, I could tell you all day about what honey tastes like, but the mm. moment you taste honey, everything that I've ever said to you about mm. it, it pales in comparison to the experience that you've had. Sure, And so for edwards all of the preaching all of the theology is framing for the encounter and then interpretation of that encounter right mm-hmm. so it's it life with god can never be about less than the encounter with mm. the love of god and the loveliness of god but then mm. as those encounters are happening what you're called to do as a follower of jesus as a disciple is to interpret that encounter in relationship to the offer that God has given you of life with him. You know, Mm -hmm. we did a, I did a book since we're, this is, I guess, a plug. I, I don't see any money from any of this. But years ago, <laughs> I, I did a book called Jonathan Edwards Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which was designed as a like a textbook for college courses, essentially. Mm-hmm. We did it with Yale Press, and it was like people who are in the exact situation you describe. Like we were supposed mm-hmm. to read this one text. Um, it doesn't make any sense out of context, but folks could find it on Amazon. It's got all kinds of other little text to go along with it to give a picture of what edwards is on about um mm-hmm. when he's preaching that sermon and right. yeah he does believe that like there's anger in the heart of god at you know at sinful behavior and mm-hmm. at you know the situation of the world but he also believes so <laughs> well and he also believes there's a solution in the mm. love of god mm. for the things that god's angry about
0: so yeah excellent yeah. So Caleb, one, one last thought here. I know we've taken a, a lot of your time, and I appreciate no, it. No, fine, um, it's great. Would you, uh, um, you know, we're we're taking some time to consider the things that God's done historically, mm. and, and looking at our moment and saying, you know, what can we learn maybe from what God's done in the past that would give us a, a sense of expectation or even or just hope that God is at work. You said earlier, God is absolutely at work at in, at every time yeah. in, in history. But you know, I I I, I want to be careful because I I. Um, I can see all these parallels between what happened then and what might happen now, or what could, and and draw those direct lines. And, and that's not, I don't think a very helpful or accurate way to forecast. Mm -hmm. Um, But kind of with that in mind, what would you say, like we could learn from the first great awakening from the ministries of Whitfield Edwards, wherever you might want to go, um, that gives us a a valid sense of hope and expectancy that that God might do something. He's always doing something new. So Mm -hmm. not a repeat, but, that God might do something remarkable in, a, in our day.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, there's a few things. First, pay attention to the places where God is working in surprising ways. Mm-hmm. Um, two, when those surprising things start to happen, uh, look deeply at the ways that those are connected in our present to things that have come before us, and learn the lessons of the past as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we don't have to make the same mistakes that people have made in the past. I'm not a huge one for learning. Uh, I'm not a huge one for for like, oh, you know, we can sort of progress in history because I think we're tempted, all the temptations that are common mm-hmm. to a person, right? Mm-hmm. We all wow. have it's the same right? temptations. But But mm-hmm. I do think that there's wisdom in looking at, well, the history of revival and remembering the fact that when God moves in surprising ways, the places that those movements can be most fundamentally rooted mm-hmm. in our ways of life are places that they're connected to the historic church, right? So when God's at work, what you're doing is you're saying, how has this happened before? And what are the ways I can embrace those roots all the way down to the life of the people of God in the Old Testament and specifically in the New Testament and the life and ministry of Jesus and the the Mm -hmm. earliest church, as well as, of course, the history of the church going forward. And then what does it look like for me to build um, structures in my own life? And Mm -hmm. for those of us who are leaders, what does it look like for us to build the kinds of pastoral structures in our churches and our networks of churches Mm -hmm. uh, that call us to avoid the pitfalls we can see from the past and lean into all the good things that we can see from the past for the sake of the future of what god's doing among us i mean you know christians never ever ever think alone we simply don't Mm -hmm. think alone And I think Americans uh, in particular have a penchant for forgetfulness, right? Mm -hmm. We have a penchant for saying, well, you know, the best days are ahead, (laughs) which, Mm -hmm. you know, I pray is true for us and for all of our movements, Mm -hmm. but it's good for us to not be, not have amnesia about what's come before Mm -hmm. uh, so that we can live into the wisdom of the shoulders we stand on, you know?
0: Yeah. Hey, man. Well, Caleb, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for giving us a big chunk of time and bringing your expertise to bear. We really, really appreciate it. Oh, it's been great. I'll talk to you anytime. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much, Caleb.